in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly... There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Those are the first 20 verses of Luke 2. The Gospel for today, Christmas Eve, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green, and and, and there's nothing in my mind more amazing and awe-inspiring than the Incarnation, that God became man and walked among us in order, ultimately, that he might redeem us from sin and death. But it all begins here, this day, this night, with angels appearing to shepherds of all people shepherds. But these are a unique group of shepherds, as we'll hear in a little bit. What we see throughout all of the story of the Bible are angels and shepherds, angels and shepherds. There's over and over again throughout the entire Bible we see that. And so what I want to do tonight is take a look at some of those things and think about the great story arc that begins before Genesis 1, and meets its sort of penultimate conclusion here in the Incarnation with God becoming man. Because what's the story? What is it that we're looking for? What is it that the Bible is is seeking to answer? And it's seeking to answer two basic questions. You can add some other things to it, but it seeks to, to answer the question, what is this world? What is the mess the chaotic mess that we find ourselves in. And if ever ever there's been a more chaotic period of time in which to live, I don't have any idea how that could possibly be. We've known for the last two years that we are completely out of control. We have no control over what goes on day to day. Um, And we know that clearly because of this COVID pandemic and people groping for answers and, and making mistakes and 
doing dumb things, and here we are. We can realize that we don't have the answers to this. It's a problem I personally believe that we created and caused, but we don't have the answers to it. We don't have the ability to be able to do what God does, which is when he created, he looked and he knew everything that would happen. And not only that, we know that he had the solution in mind before he ever created anything, because we're told in Revelation 13 that Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world. So God, in his infinite wisdom, in his omniscience, that he knows everything and can see across space and time, knows that if I create and if I do these things, then here's ultimately what will happen to my creation. I'm going to create order from chaos, but then what's going to happen is I'm going to put mankind into my orderly creation, and they're going to make an absolute chaos and a mess of it because of their sin. And so the, the question that the Bible answers is, how did we get in the mess that we're in, and how do we get out of it? How do we fix it? Well, the story of the Bible is exactly that. The story of the Bible tells us how we got into this mess. The Most other world religions will basically come down with the idea, it's a recognition that the world's a mess, it's chaotic, but there's order within that chaos. And so that there's there's a sense in all religions that that it that acknowledges reality the chaotic mess that we live in but it, but they come to different conclusions about why we're in that mess and so most world religions will come to the conclusion is that that we're a mess because the gods are a mess and and that's the central issue is there more than one god and if there's more than one god then there's a competition that goes on. There's jealousies. And, and so most of the gods are just human beings writ large. But the Bible tells a different story. It tells one God who created all things and brought all things into being. And that's a radical departure. And, and what it says is, not only is he a great God, in other words, that he's able to do anything that he purposes to do, including creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. He's also a good God because he created things in an orderly way. So the story of the Bible is the goodness of God and the greatness of God. Both those two things held together in tension. And it tells us also that, that he didn't walk away from his creation. It was his desire to live among his people, and we see that until sin enters the world. David, one of the, the, the probably the preeminent shepherd prior to Jesus, and Jesus, remember, is of the line and lineage of David, looks in Psalm 8, and, and you can see this young shepherd at night. The flock have been brought into the sheepfold, and, and he's now at rest. He knows that everything is safe and everything will be quiet now. And he looks into the heavens, and he says, O Lord, O our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. 
You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David's musing on on the greatness of God by, by looking into the heavens and seeing the glory of God on display, the glory of his creation. And then he takes it down from, from looking into the heavens and, and he asks a question, what is man? It, it's ridiculous. If you look at everything and you consider the vastness of the universe, and David had only the barest understanding of that, only what his eyes could see. We know so much more, and yet we fail to ask the question, what is man? Mostly because we fail to ask the question, who is God? And if we recognize that he is the creator of all, then we have to wonder at our place in the universe. We have to wonder mostly how we could even have a place in the universe. I mean, we're so small and inconsequential in the grand scheme of things, but what the Bible also tells us, what the Incarnation most startlingly tells us, is that we're the most important thing in this vast universe. You see, we were created in the image of God. We were created for relationship with Him. We were created to, to, to join the Trinity in worship and celebration. And we were given a stewardship over all those good things God created. The, in a book called The Legends of the Jews, which is really just a compilation of, of ancient Jewish literature, many, most of which was compiled beginning in about the 3rd century A.D., but it was not sort of compiled out of thin air. It's the, the oral teaching that had been around for so long, but by the time the third century rolls along, they've lost the temple, and so there's no priesthood any longer, not that offers the sacrifices in the temple and all those kinds of things. And so they felt the need to, to take this, what had been oral tradition, passed down from generation to generation, beginning from, with Moses, and, and they codified it in something called the Talmud, and, and basically what it undertakes to do, the Talmud, is it takes the laws that are not clear in and of themselves, and, and then it expounds on those and explains what those laws mean. And, and not only what those laws mean, but, but also how to apply those laws in the situation you find yourself in. And so that's, that it's a living document in that way. But part of that also can be... The, the tales that fill in the blanks. And so when we hear on the sixth day of creation, after, after the first five days, which were just God spoke and it was so, on the sixth day, God says, let us make man in our own image. We're, we're at the pinnacle of creation. The last thing to be created is the most important thing. And so he has already created the heavenly beings. He's created the angels and all those things because he is the only essential being in the universe, the only thing that must be. And it's from him and from his goodness that all other things find their being. And so, so when he says, let us create man in our own image, we as Christians hear that as, as the, a conversation within the Trinity. And I'm not sure that that's the explanation, to be honest with you. I believe it's a way of, of God saying, let's take counsel and, and grabbing everything's attention. Everything that has come before now attends to what God will do next, which is a dramatic 
statement to create something in the image of God. And yet that's what he intends to do, and that will catch the attention of everything. In, in this book, The Legends of the Jews, here's the way they see what happens behind the scenes. When the Holy One, blessed be he, came to create man, he created a group of ministering angels and asked them, do you agree that we should make man in our image? They replied, sovereign of the universe, what will be his deeds? What will he do? God showed them the history of mankind. The angels replied, what's man that you're mindful of him? In other words, don't let man be created. Why would you do that, given what will happen? God destroyed the angels. And then he created a second group, and he asked them the same question. They gave the same answer, and God destroyed them as well. And then he created a third group of angels. And they replied, sovereign of the universe, the first and second group of angels told you not to create man, and it did not avail them. In other words, it didn't go well for them. You did not listen. What then can we say but this, the universe is yours, do with it as you wish. And God created man. But when it came to the generation of the flood and then to the generation those who built the Tower of Babel, the angels said to God, were not the first angels right? See how great is the corruption of mankind? And God replied, this is from Isaiah 46, 4, even to old age I will not change and even to gray hair I will still be patient. They see what we see, which is if, if you knew in advance what would happen to your good creation, if you brought something called man into it, you would counsel against doing such a thing. But the, the difference is God had a plan for how to deal with that. He, he knew what would happen when, when he gave us an orderly creation and said, now expand this garden, taking the basic plan that I've got and using your creativity, expand this across the face of my good creation on, on the face of the earth. And that was the plan. And what did we do instead? Well, we created chaos. God gave us one commandment, and we couldn't keep it, which is don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so we did. And when we did, God cursed the ground, and we separated ourselves from God. We hid from him because we had sinned, and we saw our own nakedness. We saw our own shame and hid ourselves from God. At the end of the the judgment in Genesis 3, God says, Behold, the man has become like us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so we separated ourselves from God, and we cut off our access to the tree of life. Jews refer to the Torah as the tree of life because in that we find the owner's manual for how to live in this world and how to restore at some level the earth that we have destroyed. Jesus is the tree of life because by eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood, then we participate in eternal life now through the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. But, but the separation between God and man that's affected there also it infects the relationship between Adam and Eve. They, they, he blames her for what's happened. And, and then we see the, that bitter fruit in the next generation. We see Abel, who is a keeper of sheep, and Cain, who is a tiller of the ground, both decide to bring offerings to the Lord. And Abel 
brings the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. He brings a lamb for the sacrifice. And, and Cain, it says, brings some of the fruit of the ground, so some stuff. And God was pleased with Abel's sacrifice, but with Cain's he was not pleased. And so what happens now, because Abel's desire was to please God, what happens is Cain, in his jealousy, kills his brother. Fratricide in the first generation. And we see that later. We see these separations and distances happening all over and over again through the Bible. We see the same thing with Noah and his sons, who after the flood, one does something untoward, and, and now his son is cursed because of his sin. And then as we get to Abraham, we see him being called away from his father's house, and he takes his nephew Lot with him. And, and ultimately, there's a quarrel between their shepherds, and they have to separate. And then later, when we get to Jacob, we see this the possibility of Cain and Abel playing itself itself out all over again between Jacob and his brother Esau who's going to kill him and so he has to leave and what happens on the way he runs into angels protecting him along the way and then what happens next he becomes a shepherd (laughs) tending the flocks of his father-in-law Laban And we see when they go down to Egypt in the time of Joseph, we see again the possibility of fratricide in that instance. Brothers all united to kill one brother, and then finally cooler heads prevail, and he's sold into slavery into Egypt, and goes down there and lives a long time, and then finally brings the family down. And what does he say? Go tell Pharaoh your shepherds, because the Egyptians detest shepherds. And so they're in the land of Goshen, and they're shepherds, and then They're rejected by the people who are among them for no particular reason. They're just numerous. And so they begin to kill the Israelite children, and then God raises up one who is separated from his family because of that murderous Pharaoh. And then he becomes part of Pharaoh's household, but when he's old enough to make his own decision, he decides that he's going to align himself with God's people, with his own people. And then that doesn't go well, ultimately. And he's separated again, and he's sent out into the wilderness. And what is he there? He, Well, he's a shepherd for his father-in-law until he sees the burning bush and the angel speaking from the burning bush. And then he goes back and redeems the people, but not ultimately. He's not found fit because of sin. But along the way, what do we get? We get the Passover, and we get the Passover lamb that has to be brought into the household four days before they slaughter it. It's not just costly in the sense that it's the best. It's costly in the sense that when you bring that animal into the household and live with it for four days, there's a relational cost to slaughtering what's become a pet in those days. It's the story over and over again of separation and God making a path for reconciliation, and that's the sacrificial system that was practiced in the temple. And ultimately, all that comes to its fruition to say that that we became God's people when he passed over us in the plague of the firstborn. He passed over the houses that had offered 
that lamb in obedience to God's commandment and smeared the blood on the doorpost in what would look like a cross pattern. If you put dab at the top, dab at the sides, and dab at the bottom, you're making the sign of the cross when you do that. And then we go through thousands, maybe 2,000 years or so, of the people in the land and being exiled from the land and back to the land and then the separation of the ten tribes from the other two tribes and then those tribes becoming the lost tribes. And then ultimately, by the time that we get to the reading that we had for today, as we get to Christmas Eve, they're in the land, but it's not their land. It belongs to Rome. And therefore, they have to respond. When Rome declares a census, they have to go back to their original places. There's a little bit of Babel happening here because the families all have to come back to the place of origin. Whatever clan they're from, they have to go there for this registration. And so we see this family going to Bethlehem. And then we see the angel appear to the shepherds. Well, these are not just random shepherds. These are different shepherds. These are the ones who pasture a specific flock. It's a flock that's doomed to destruction. It's doomed to be the Passover lambs for the following year. So these have to be perfect, spotless lambs with no blemishes. So these shepherds are hired by the temple, by the priests, to look over this flock to ensure that the lambs that will be brought to Jerusalem for Passover will become, will be the pure and spotless lambs. And so these shepherds have a unique responsibility among all shepherds, and that is to pasture the flock that will be the Passover lambs so that they can continue to offer those sacrifices in order and in faith that God will pass over in judgment over his people. Relationship is restored and relationship is celebrated through that. And so these shepherds, the one who are shepherding the flock of the temple, the ones who, who shepherd the Passover lambs, the angel comes to them and makes the announcement that the Messiah is born. The ultimate Passover lamb. And his resurrection will ensure that we have faith and confidence in that sacrifice once offered. And so these shepherds are brought to see the pure and spotless lamb who will be the salvation of the world. God reconciling all things back to himself, bringing order from chaos, but only for those who believe. Because we know in our hearts that whatever the chaos is in the world, there's an order that sits over the top of all that. And it's created by the one who took on flesh and came and dwelt among us this night. The world began to have a different order from that moment forward. What the angels didn't know, what the prophets didn't know, what no one knew was is that this is the fullness of time and this is God's response to why would you create man? It's because of this moment in time. When God comes in our likeness, 
in order to redeem the world from sin and death, to bring new hope, new life into the world. All through the epistles of both Paul and Peter, what we see is, is, and also in Stephen's speech, actually, in Acts 7, before he's stoned, as he confronts his own people, he says that the giving of the law on Sinai, giving the Torah, the Word of God, was attended by angels. Jesus is the Word, and his birth, his incarnation, like the giving of the law at Sinai, is attended by angels and celebrated in this way. And we know how this is going to go. We know that that original fratricide of Cain and Abel is now going to play itself out on a much larger stage as the one who is the given Messiah, who is pleasing to God because God says, I am well pleased with him. That one is going to be killed because he is acceptable to God and the jealousy of us who were created in his image, who didn't recognize him, didn't know him, and rejected and despised him. But this blood, the blood of Abel cried out for vengeance, the blood of Jesus cries out for mercy. Just as his prayer from the cross says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We don't know what we don't know. (laughs) We grope about in the dark, Paul says. But this night, new light came into the world and made um, relationship with God possible. It brought him near to us in order that, through the sacrifice and death and the resurrection of Jesus, then the Holy Spirit might be poured out on all God's people and that God might live in us, dwell in us, not just with us and among us, but in us by the power of the Holy Spirit for those who believe who were given the right to become children of God. Let us celebrate this night, God taking on flesh, dwelling among us with one purpose in mind, our redemption.